tonight we have a little bit of a different format, actually a big, big difference in that um, rather than giving a talk, tonight's open to any questions you might have about your practice or about the, uh, any of the talks that have been given or any of the Buddhist teachings. We have two standing mics. That way, you know, so if you're any part of the room, rather than us running around with the mics, if you want to just come to the mic, that's the way it'll work best. And then stay there, because it may be that you ask a question and I want to just ask you a little more of what you mean or what, what's going on for you. So that's the format. I like to say on the Monday night group, where we do this a lot, that not to feel shy about um, your question and to trust that whatever you're wondering about, it's going to be in the room. You know, we're, it's going to be something that I, I've seen it always benefits others to hear the questions we each have. So with that as an opening, I'd like to invite whoever would like to ask a question. If there's a few of you don't, it's fine to kind of be in, line up behind the mic so that you're there to come on up and, and ask. I've got a couple of questions, if I may. Could you kind of go into awareness, which he just talked about, and investigation? Uh, Let's say you have a thought, maybe a couple of thoughts, and then you have a, uh, uh, you know, a a tenseness in your body. Do you give equal weight and attention to everything, or do you give more attention to what's been bothering you? And... I also don't understand, don't understand where the difference between investigation, which I take it is a good thing, and analysis, yeah. which I take it is not a good thing because it gets you away from mindfulness. So, yeah. so could you kind of? Well, they're both really good questions, and I'm going to just start with the second one. The purpose of investigation is to deepen our experience of what's happening in the moment. So, if you find the investigation is cognitive, like well, I'm feeling this because, you know, when I was young, my mother used to have a critical tone of voice and that made me defensive. And now I get that way with my kids. You know, if we get into that kind of thing, that's not wise investigation. That's more of an analytic. But if instead the investigation is, hmm, what what really, where, where am I feeling something in my body? And what's the kind of sense of that? And... Is it tight? Is it loose? Is it so, you know, really investigating the sensation in the body? And it might be that you ask the question, what am I actually believing? Oh, I'm believing that I'm falling short or that someone's going to reject me. Oh, now what does that really feel like in the body? So you keep coming back. And this is the key when you're investigating. It's useful to find out maybe what you're believing, but come back to find out how it is in the body. Because unless you're connected with the felt sense in the body, there's no real fullness of presence. So that's part one, the difference between analytic and investigate. Does that give you a sense of that piece? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Uh, And I don't don't know if you mean this as part two, but I'm wondering how much emphasis do you put on that as opposed to thinking about a tenseness in your body or something else? In other words, I assume you don't give equal weight to all these things that come into you? There's a lot going on. So it's usually wise not to strain and stress about, oh, what should I pay attention to now? But just be open to whatever feels most predominant or compelling. 
that's in the foreground. And so it may be that the sensation in the body is really stronger. It may be that you've got a kind of a worry thought that keeps on running through and keeps on running through. And what I like to do with worry thoughts is just name it like that. Okay, a worry thought. But then again, and you might even notice the content. It's usually one of the top ten hits, right? You know, you know how that is? It's like worried about a relationship or what's going on at work. So you just kind of put a frame around that. Okay, worry thought. This is which of the top ten. And then again, what does that feel like in the body? So, so stick with whatever's predominant and you'll notice that as you pay attention it'll shift and something else will come into the forefront. And our job is really a kind of relaxed attentiveness and to get that it doesn't matter so much what you're paying attention to. What matters is the quality of the attention. Okay, again and again. Let me stay put for a moment. There's something I saw that I grabbed right before I came in. This is Bokanan. It says, Life is a garden, not a road. We enter and exit through the same gate, wandering. Where we go matters less than what we notice. So it's the, qu- the quality of the attentiveness, that it's relaxed, it's open, it's non-judging, rather than is it to the ache in the back, or is it to the fear in the chest, or is it to the obsession in the mind. Okay? If, you, if, that does, if there's something else that's come up when you ask, feel free. It does. Can I ask you a second question? Yeah, please. Okay. Would you kind of go into uh, mindfulness... In, in life as opposed to meditation, uh, does it mean that if you're washing dishes it's not a good idea to think about what you're going to say to your boss tomorrow and, or daydream? Well, there is the Zen thing of, you know, one thing at a time, pay attention to exactly what you're doing in the moment. And it's part of um, our incarnation that we do need to do some planning and some thinking about things and it may be that you're not with the breath right now because you're planning what you're going to say to your boss. And what's helpful is just to have the intention to not get so lost that you're living in a virtual reality. That you think when you're thinking and you do the planning but that there's a kind of coming back and a a re-anchoring so there is some of that aliveness and space of what's right here that's kind of holding your different kind of thought processes. Even if what's right here is boring, I take it it's still good to come back to that. You know, what's interesting about boring is boring doesn't have to do with the object. It has to do with the uh, level of attentiveness. If you're really, really attentive, there's a natural interest. But usually we're kind of dull and then there's not a lot of outside stimuli and that equals boring. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I've been grappling with no self, so I need some no self. You've help been grappling me. with no self. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good line. <laughs> yeah. The whole the whole idea of healthy self or the higher self, anatta is a very important teaching in the Buddhist Buddhism. And I was just wondering, can you elaborate on the whole concept of no self? In thirty seconds or less, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, it is really central. It's almost like one friend of mine went to Asia and, um, you know, he was asked what the very essence of Buddhism is and, 
And his response was, you know, that there's really no inherent entity of self. And, and this Asian monk that asked him that started laughing, going, yes, it's no self, no problem, no self, no problem. And, and it's true that the Buddha basically taught that our suffering is that our sense of what we are gets hitched to a very limited quality of self. And so what meditation reveals, and and the reason we don't like talk a lot about, okay, so this is the deal, there's no self, is that it's really what's revealed when you're very, very present. As soon as there's any thinking, it will reincarnate the idea and story of a self. But if we're quiet and not lost in thought, all that we can notice, and, and you might just sense right now if, if you really just slow it down and you just pay attention to what's here, what you find is there's sensations and there's sounds. There might be some emotion in the chest. And if you look and sense, is there a self here? There's just this kind of changing flow of phenomena and there's an awareness of that. But the only way to construct a self is to have a thought again. So if we can in some way live in the kind of presence that knows, okay, on a relative plane our stories and our world is going to seem to have a self-quality to it, But if we can keep touching into this changing awake space, there's a kind of freedom in discovering what we are. And it's mysterious. Because if you realize that there's no solid entity, nothing solid, like you can't find something centralized right here, if you really get that, then it becomes a mystery. And there's a lot of freedom there. So I think that's probably enough words because the invitation really is to quiet enough so that when you look inside you can sense without thoughts, well, what is here? And really the inquiry that reveals a not to or no self is that question, really, who am I? Or what is aware right now? I mean, if you listen, and John pointed it out so beautifully to the sound of silence, But if you listen, and maybe if you all just close your eyes for a moment and just, again, listen. And in a relaxed way, sense that the sounds could just wash through you. The sounds in the room and the more distant sounds. Then if you just ask, what is aware of these sounds? What knows these sounds? And just turn the mind towards awareness. If you ask that question, You might have a habitual thought of, oh, why me, of course? But then you might ask again, so what's aware of that me? 
And again, it's just a gentle turning the attention back towards the awareness itself. And it gets pretty mysterious because you can't land anywhere. There's no answer. You can open your eyes. If you really, really get quiet and check, there isn't an answer to that question. There's just a mystery. There's a, perhaps a sense of a, a vast field of awakeness, is some language you can put on it. This is a little bit, Rob, to the response to your question that the only way to really explore is to get quiet and then just inquire in the most deep way as to really who's here or what's aware. And I love the question and I really invite you to keep exploring. So, so thank you. Hey. Hi, Deb. Good. Um, so sometimes, I'm a little bit newer, and sometimes I find when we start doing the meditation, you talk about f- being aware and finding a, aware of like tension or muscle pain or something like that. I feel like sometimes I get, I get caught, and it's harder, like my back will hurt, my neck will hurt, and it's almost, I try to keep going with it, I find it's almost like a string attached to it that brings me, keeps bringing me back there. I fixate on it. Um, and it's hard for me to keep being engaged and in, in being aware and, and letting my mind get farther away from that. So you, let me just say back what I think I heard, which is that when you're meditating and there's like a real strong tension or something, rather than being able to just be in some more relaxed, open space, you keep fixating on it. It's like a string that keeps pulling you back. So um, what would happen if you didn't try to get away from it and you just, in a kind of gentle way, just kind of explored it, like instead of calling it pain, Mm -hmm. just sensed it as a changing constellation of sensations, just moving around burning, tingling, tight, tense, squeeze, whatever, but just let it be there. Have you tried that? Yeah, I usually end up wiggling in my, in my chair. You end up what? <laughs> wiggling or moving. Yeah, so some part of you just like doesn't want to just sit, sit still with it. It's, there's something in you that wants to get away from it, right? So, first of all, you're being mindful. You're noticing that there's this going on and there's something in you that wants to get away, Right? So that's the first thing to note. Note that you don't like it. Okay? Here's, here's the sequence that happens. We get an unpleasantness, we don't like it, we push it away. And then we get caught in the self that's struggling against the pain. That's, that's suffering. We're, we're divided, we're at odds, we're at war with experience. So what mindfulness teaches is to begin to notice that process. The first step is to name it's unpleasant, don't like it. Just become aware of that. Again, it's like putting a frame around a picture. You're recognizing what's going on. Then the next step is, with some interest, see if you can breathe with where it is and just, in a, staying very still, just sense how it wants to play itself without leaving it. Just try that. If it gets overwhelming, really strong, then bring your attention somewhere else. Listen to sound. Just listen to sound or just feel your breath or just feel your hands and then come back to it. So you're going... It's what some people describe as, you know, touch and then you leave. You touch and then you leave. Until there's more and more moments 
that there's kind of a stillness and you're just letting it be there. I'm going to add one other thing. Most of us unconsciously are always trying to manage unpleasantness. We're always trying to get more comfortable. We're always squirming in our seat are squirming at work or in relationships but we're always in some way trying to manage things and are not at home in what is. That's, that is how it is. We usually want something different. So it's a very powerful practice to take just the discomfort that comes when we're sitting in meditation and explore our relationship to it. Start noticing that we're not liking it. Start noticing that not only does it feel like pain and we're not liking it but it brings up fear that it's never going to go away or that it's going to be too much start noticing that we feel victimized by it or we feel like we're a bad meditator start noticing just in this little microcosm and then you'll find that the same reactivity that you're having to the pain when you're sitting here meditating is what you're actually doing in your life It's very, very revealing. So I appreciate the question, and I hope that gives you a little to work with. Yeah, yeah. Hey. Hey there. I have a question about um, what to focus on. I've used breath a fair amount and pain and discomfort. Sometimes there's pleasurable feeling, like in my chest or um, pressure in my brow. And I'm wondering if you think that that's something worth focusing on and using that as a point to focus instead of the breath. Maybe use the breath to come into that place and, uh, and then getting there and staying with that. Or is it better to stay with the breath all the time? Or have you tried that? Have you tried um, letting your concentration be on a pleasant object? Mm-hmm. And how does that go? Good. <laughs> <laughs> Say a little more. What do you notice? I notice curiosity. Uh-huh. And then as I go deeper, as I become more comfortable with the sensation that, you know, where at first when I felt the warmth or uh, that kind of sensitive spot that feels good a little bit, but is a little scary, that the more comfortable I get, the longer I can, kind of just what you were saying, I think, the longer I can sit with it, and then the more expansive it becomes. And mm-hmm. uh, it seems what like something worthwhile. What becomes expansive is actually your attention. The value of bringing your attention to a positive anchor is that the attention can relax and stay there and actually become very steady and penetrating and open and relaxed. So if you're training in concentration, the uh, wisdom is to actually choose something that at least is neutral but even better is pleasant. Could I ask another question? I just want to say that there's no um, particular rule that says that your primary anchor should be the breath. It's not like, oh, to meditate you're being with the breath. For some people the breath is really useful because it connects the mind and body and it's always there and there's a, a steadiness that allows there to be a kind of absorption and an anchor into presence. I know many people that the breath is kind of subtle and hard to land on and they're always getting lost and it doesn't even serve that well. And that it's actually easier to feel, to kind of do a sweep of the sensations in the body and the hands or else to let sounds kind of wash through. So it's a useful thing to ask, well, what anchor is going to be most helpful? And for you, Ian, if you want to um, go more into some of the absorption, I would choose something that does feel pleasant But then let your intention be to really rest with it, to kind of merge with it, to really let your attention 
be very, very close in and relaxed with that, ex- with that um, object. If uh, the, the sensation is predominantly painful, would you say that there's a value with uh, sitting with that as well? Or is it better to kind of look to see where you feel good and move away from the pain towards that and hope that that expands? Actually, it's not useful to bypass the painful. It's not useful to start in with something pleasant and try to override it. Start with what's right there, whatever's predominant, and make friends with it. Find some mindfulness with whatever's there. And once there's some mindfulness with whatever's there, some kind of balance and non-reactivity, then you can refine the attention on something pleasant. So this is what we're talking about here is described as jhana training. Jhana are the concentration or absorption states. And we begin with just some general mindfulness again to be um, in a non-reactive knowing what's happening. But once that's there, if you want to train that more penetrating focus, you can pick something pleasant. It may be um, the sensation, you know, at the the tip, you know, at the tip of the nose, or it may be for some people a softness in the eyes. It could be um, just the feeling in the hands, and just stay with it. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Good evening. Good evening. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about rain tonight. I've heard you talk about it many times, and I get the first three letters, but I'm a little bit vague about the N, what, uh-huh. what that's all about. Maybe it's because, I don't know, it seems sometimes when I've heard you, you talk about it, that last part gets a little bit rushed maybe and doesn't get quite the same amount of attention. Or maybe sometimes by that time I'm not paying as much attention. <laughs> But I would like to hear about particularly that last letter in in the process of rain, if you would. Well, I love the question because the N is really the fruit of the practice. And it's a little bit what Rob was asking about. So I'll I'll walk through the letters um, and, yeah, I'll do that. Um, Let me just ask, how many here are completely unfamiliar with the acronym RAIN? Can I see by hands? Oh, good. All right. So this is real new for some. Okay, so RAIN is an acronym that helps you to train in mindful presence. Many people find it really, really helpful. The R stands for recognize and the A stands for allow. So recognize and allow is the fundamental uh, two elements of a mindful presence. To notice what's happening and to let it be there. And the two questions that go with the R and the A are really what is happening right now? And just recognize what's happening right here. And then, can I let it be? Can I just be with this? Okay, so that's the R and the A. Now, if there's a tangle, if there's a difficult, challenging place that's going on inside you, then you need the I. And the I is investigate with an intimate attention. It's really a double I. Investigate and intimate. And what that does is it deepens the RA. Because when you investigate, you recognize more fully what's going on. And when you're intimate, you allow more completely. Does that make sense? So it's recognize and allow, and then the I, the double I of a little deeper. What's really happening here? A little more spacious. Can I really let it be? Intimate. The N is the experience of full presence when you have brought those elements alive. The N, the f- is, it's a double N also, two different kind of flavors. 
N is non-identification. That when you're fully present with what's going on, fully, let's say there's a, there's a lot of fear in your body, when you're fully present with it, you feel the waves, but you're resting in that kind of ocean of presence and you're not identified with the waves. It's not like, I am a scared self. It's more, fear is moving through this being. There's a shift. With the end, you're not identified, so there's not that same reactivity. And that's what the Buddha described as the difference between pain and suffering. It all comes down to identification. If you're identified with the waves of what's going on, there's going to be suffering. If you're present, you've recognized aloud, been intimate with, then there's going to be the kind of space that lets things come and go, but it doesn't, ha- it doesn't get hitched to, that's me. Okay? Now the other part of N, I like to call it also as natural awareness. You're re- you have re-inhabited the fullness of your natural awareness. You're not identified with something smaller, and you're re-established in the vastness and the fullness of presence. So that is the end of rain. Non-identified, by the way, is another way of saying no self or empty. Does that make sense to some of you? If you're not identified with any element of what's going on, then you're resting in a vastness, but you're not inside a story of a self. Tim asked if you could substitute the word judgment for non-identified. Um, there could be times that there's not a judgment, but you're still identified, as in when you're chasing, if you're addicted and you're cl- grasping onto something, you might not be judging, but you're holding tight. So that's still identification. Identification means there's no clinging, there's no grasping, there's no resisting. There's, that's in moments that there's no resisting whatsoever. No chasing after that's non-identification. So thank you for your question. Yeah. Hi. Hi there. I often hear people describe the kind of bliss and elevated mind that one can achieve through meditation, that expansive quality of mind. And I was wondering if you can explain how that feels. What does that bliss feel like that one can attain through meditation? I often hear esoteric types describe it kind of similarly to a psychedelic experience. And I wonder if, in terms of how our minds work, how our brains function, if there is a similarity in in that experience in in functioning. So this is really a question about what what the elevated states of bliss or rapture, the highs of meditation really are like. Exactly, and and how we can get to that point. (laughs) (laughs) Without popping pills and the like, right? (laughs) Well, let me just sense what would be most useful in responding to that. I think Ram Dass says that there is a connection to being in an altered state that is drug-induced and being there. The, the comment is uh, that Ramdas said there's a relationship between a drug-induced state and a meditation-induced. And there's no question that meditation uh, can in- release endorphins and opiates. And yeah, I mean, we're, we're a bundle of chemicals. And when you pay attention in certain ways, it shifts your chemistry. And so there's been all sorts of research that have shown people's, the subjective report of a number of 
very high expansive states and some of them include because they're distinct they're not just like everything's bliss some one one of the states is rapture and there is a sense of um, when the mind gets very very absorbed what happens is the sense of boundary of self and world out there dissolves and and they've seen the part of the brain that maintains that idea of a compartmentalized self and a world is no the, the blood flow to that part of the brain isn't happening it's not activated so you have a more global universal sense of merger and that rapture is very vibrational and um, delightful and delicious and that's one particular expanded state then there is a state of happiness which is actually calmer than rapture and it's very expansive and that too is kind of marked with certain brain shifts and underneath that is peace which isn't even as activated as happiness and these are by the way a description of the jhanas the states of absorption and with peace there is a quality of ease and spaciousness that really you're at home in that and then even under that is described as equanimity where there it's just it's kind of um, the image is sometimes of like the depths and the vastness of the ocean underneath the waves where there's absolutely a kind of a stillness where there's no reaction to anything there's no sense of being pushed or pulled there's just that totally balanced presence So that's a description for you, just briefly, of four distinct states that are all considered expanded states that all have to do with a kind of a sustained attentiveness that collects the mind and quiets the mind. Now, there's no, like, language for that, for the experience of pure freedom or anatta or the deathless, that, that's beyond words. It doesn't have to do with a certain biochemistry or anything like that. And yet, the goal of practice, it's not to do with being happy, even being peaceful, even, being ra- even finding rapture. And one of the um, things that happens, especially in our culture, but you can see it in Asia too, is there's a grasping after the real pleasant meditative states. And I know about that because I did it for over a decade where I, my first introduction to meditation was a more concentrative practice and for those that aren't familiar there's two different basic trainings in meditation now one of them is take an anchor keep bringing the mind to the anchor come back and back and hold a steady sustained attention until the mind gets very very quiet and collected and that's when those states I just described arise and I was very, very hooked on having them. I mean, it's like I'd sit down to meditate for the purpose of having a certain biochemical high. I felt great from it. And, and, that's, and it's very seductive. When I got introduced to Buddhism, I got introduced to the other type of practice, which is really insight or mindfulness practice, which does a certain amount of concentrating the mind so that you can get quiet enough so you can notice what's going on right here. In mindfulness, the purpose is not to experience rapture, the purpose is to recognize what's happening in the present moment and just allow it. And in that recognizing and allowing, there's a shift of identity. So you're no longer a self trying to have a high state, 
you're just resting in an awareness where life is happening and it might be what's happening is grief. And yet there's a freedom because you're not attached or resisting anything. So I just want to contrast all those very cool states with the ultimate state of freedom that's possible. Chogyam Trungpa actually called, described this as the lion's roar, that more than any of the happinesses that we normally seek, there's a confidence that comes in knowing that whatever arises, we can be with that and not be caught or lost. And that's the lion's roar, and it's, it's the ultimate happiness. Because we know that we don't have to, like, defend against what's coming. We don't have to manage anything. We're free to live our moments. So, so I thank you for your question. Yeah. My question is about intimacy and having one's needs met. It has been taught that it isn't right to expect to have your needs be met by someone else. That It's best when you can meet your own needs. And I get that. Nobody wants to be at the mercy of what somebody else thinks of them or does or doesn't do for them. That's certainly a higher enlightened state of being. But then when I start to apply that to my practical life, I realize that in my relationships, I fully expect to have some needs being met, be met. And, you know, whether it's with a partner or with a close friend or with a teacher... I have needs that have to do with being seen, being heard, being valued, etc. And I don't know that it's wrong. I don't think I could stay in those relationships if, if those needs weren't met, if I didn't feel valued. And so there's the sense of, well, my own sense of value needs to come from myself and no one else. And God, it's really lonely and boring if I'm just meeting my own needs all the time. (laughs) So how do we... How do we deal with that? So how about if the reality is we have needs and that we, in the deepest way, try to respond to the needs with a deep presence with our own being. I mean, we have to have that intimacy with our own being. And this is refuge in presence, but we also take refuge in sangha, that we, that we um, draw on the love and the care and... Of, of the people that are close to us to really help nourish that sense of well-being. And that's totally cool and totally fine. Where the suffering comes is in the word expect. In the word should. In the word it's supposed to be. How about that there's a longing? There's a longing both that we can hold our own being with loving presence and also that others can show up in that way. There's a longing for that, a want for that and to be mindful of that, but to also be mindful of when what creeps in is a sense of should, because it's the way it is. It's like we can add on that it should be different, but it isn't. It is how it is. So if we can take it as it is, name what we want, name what we need, but then hold the whole thing with that kind of a a balance, we're more likely to have our needs met. It creates division when there's a should. It creates division. division. Oh, I thought you said division. the vision. <laughs> <laughs> no vision. <laughs> it obscures your vision. Right. But does that 
makes sense as we're describing it, that it's fine to long to have your needs met, it's fine to, of course we have to, unless the primary ground is, I call this often spiritual reparenting, where we really see our own life, see our own inner life, and hold that with love. Because what are the two things that a child most needs, is to be seen and to be loved. So we have to be able to offer that to our own being. And in our relational field, that's what we long for. And we can offer that to each other. But when we add on, you should be doing more, and it should be in the package, I want it, then we get in trouble. Okay. For now. Yeah. We'll we'll keep talking about it. (laughs) Okay, thanks. Hello. Hey. Um... Uh, There's a young man I know who's wrapped up in a lot of personal rage and he's read about Buddhism and is interested in the concept of meditation and probably would never come to this uh, meeting with his mother. (laughs) But um, I'm wondering... (laughs) (laughs) So wait, what young man? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, something like that. So he's intellectually could be engaged in the practice, but I think needs some kind of resource or... And I just don't know how to help him, and I don't want to push, and I don't want to proselytize and that sort of thing. Any thoughts on... So is the question, what would be helpful to a young man who feels a lot of rage but isn't going to come and explore the practices directly? Not directly in this kind of venue, no. I'm thinking books or... I, I just don't... I'm kind of at a loss. The, yeah, the, the teen retreats and the young people's retreats. So that would be an amazing resource if he was open to it. But it wouldn't be an amazing resource if it, he wasn't drawn to it. So, so that is one thing. And that's, we, I don't have the information right in front of me, but one of the uh, young women in this community has been running the teen retreats and young adult retreats. Mm-hmm. And that they're life-changing for anyone that has the good fortune to go near them. In terms of um, books and things like that, I would have to think about that. Like, I can't, I can't roll that off the top of my head. Okay. But if, you know, anybody, that, anyone in here that might have a resource, just, I, what's your name? Jane. Jane. Mm-hmm. Just visually catch on to who Jane's here and talk to her afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. If he, you mean if he would listen to the talks, is that a possibility? It, that, that is, yeah. It just... I, I've probably got like one chance to engage him, and so. you want to you want to pull out your best card, right? right? The best, yeah, the best card. Yeah. So if people have ideas, we'll think about it. But if yeah, if anyone has ideas, meet afterwards. Hi, hey there. This one's been bothering me this week. How do I, when I'm going about my daily life, waking life, how can I practice non-identification with the running, you know, tape that's going on in my head. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll just start there. Well, so stay put. So okay. this is a really important question. So we, a running tape going in your head, and it's, is it creating feelings? Yes. Strong feelings. Yes. So there's something called premature transcendence, where we try to quickly go into, and the Buddhists call it emptiness. Okay, it's all empty, it's not me, it's just a tape, it's just, you know. And that doesn't work, Right. So you know that. That doesn't work, right? Okay, so the only only possible way to move towards that freedom is to 
get very, very totally recognized and close in with what's actually going on. You cannot disidentify until you're totally right there with it. Disidentification is the result of the quality of your presence. So, the tape's going on, and I know what obsessive thinking's like. It, there's very little space around it, right? Mm-hmm. So you can just start naming, you know, and you, na- and you know about this, just naming it and naming what it's like, and keep coming to where it is in your body, and what do you notice in your body? What happens for you? Well, it was occurring while I was driving here. Mm-hmm. And maybe um, what I would focus on after realizing that I was in my head was just the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. My foot on the gas. The traffic in front of me, which I should, mm-hmm. <laughs> would have been nice mm-hmm. if I was focused mm-hmm. on it anyway. That kind of thing. Uh, but, what's, but, but what started to happen was, you know, there's some things that I've recently gone through in my life mm-hmm. that are now connecting to things that happened when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. All this, it's like a pulling back, a, you know, when you're shuffling a deck of cards, that whole... There are just all these like pictures and connections mm-hmm. that are being made, and then it's then my mind in my mind I come back to my present situation, and then there's anger that arises. And so um, while I was on my way, while this was happening, I was naming anger mm-hmm. and pain, mm-hmm. uh, steering wheel, foot on the gas then trying to also be aware of what's in my body as I'm going. But, and I guess there's the, there's the running away. I'm trying to run away from the feelings that are coming up based on the images and thoughts in my mind. So you know that. What lets you know that, that there's a running away? What lets me know that in the moment? Mm-hmm. I suppose it's just, you know, what I've learned, you know, while practicing, mm-hmm. that this is pain and I don't want to feel it so let me feel the steering wheel okay so let's stop right there for a moment so I'm hearing that you've got a skillful means going which is it gets a lot it gets overwhelming so you've got a very immediate concrete anchor that you go to just to get yourself right here Mm -hmm. steering wheel pedal street right there and that actually is useful because it doesn't serve you to be overwhelmed it's okay to want to get away in the sense of let's just anchor in something that's not so intense for a moment. You are very dedicated to waking up, to being present. And I think you're finding your way with something with a pretty heavy storm. And when it's a really heavy storm, it's okay to kind of, you have to keep experimenting what's going to give you a little balance in the middle. And when it's a really heavy storm, it takes an understanding that you're not going to be able to find non-identification. You're going to have to get knocked around and to forgive that. It's okay. It's okay if you get knocked around. It's a season. Something in you is waking up through it anyway. And it's that... Do you have a sense of that? It's that how you're holding the whole thing. Like it's something just forgiving that your system's getting knocked around. It's just how it is right now. Mm. Use your anchor. Try to be with it when you can. If you get knocked around more, just say forgiven, forgiven. Give it, hold it gently like that. And forgiveness towards myself. Is That's right. right. You okay. got it. And just one other yeah, little yeah, piece. Yeah. All that stuff in this moment that goes through my mind, is all that considered story? That's a really good question. 
it's conceptual. I mean, you're having images and memories and so on. But that doesn't mean it's not really useful and valuable and part of what is needing to be... It's part of the unlived life. In other words, our stories are portals into the unlived life. Do you know what I mean? Like you have, you have a flash of, a, of something in your childhood or something and then it taps into some feeling of the depth of the betrayal. That's like your story's a portal. So mm. honor the story. Don't like overly get lost in it. Don't, for the re- don't create an institution out of it. But, you know, let it be a portal so that you come back into your body and again real kind. Okay. Yeah. Okay, dear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thank you. Yes, I said premature transcendence is trying to like disidentify and be real vast. I'm the ocean, these are just waves before you've really felt the waves. Is that? What's that? You got to jump in and lean in and feel what's there. And that's not always all at once. Because as Sonia was describing, sometimes it's like it's too, you're getting washed around too much and you just need to kind of like stabilize with a more neutral anchor and then you come back again. The question here was, and what if you felt it, what if you've been like knocked around by those same waves millions of times, right? <laughs> the disidentification comes from the, pro- the level of presence. Like I've been hit by the same waves many times, but sometimes I can sense, oh, there's a little more allowing, a little less resisting, and there's a little less identification. So it's amazing how deep are the, the possibility of not resisting can be. It's very, very subtle the way we, we resist our experience. I'll sometimes say to myself, I'll sometimes feel fear and say, okay, letting it be here, letting it be here. But there's some very subtle place in me that thinks it shouldn't be there and is waiting for it to go away. Just a very, very subtle place. So the level of presence and non-resistance can be quite, quite deep. Yeah. Um, I have a question about hope and what the Dharma says about hope. And I think hope is contrary to mindfulness, mm. maybe. Mm. And I'm one, but I, there are certain situations where, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I have hope that someone's going to get well or that something like that's mm-hmm. going to happen. I'm wondering if you could explain mm. what the Dharma has to say about hope. Could you all hear this? Because it's such a good question, the question of hope. So there's T.S. Eliot that said, I told my heart to be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Okay, so there's the hope that we kind of are expecting, kind of like, I'll only be okay if it turns out a certain way, that kind of hope. So if our okayness in this moment is based on a story turning out a certain way, then that's a hope that's actually getting in the way of us being uh, courageously right here with, with the whatever. But there's a different kind of hope. Like I noticed this summer I, I got pretty sick and I remember at one point, um, you know, feeling like the more I, I, ha- I started telling myself stories of how I just wasn't going to get better. And so I, it was like a loss of hope. But it, was more than, it wasn't even hope. It was like a loss of just being open to the possibility of, you know, healing is possible, this is possible. It was like not open to the creativity of the universe. And I could feel how that was actually dragging down my immune system. And I think that it's really important 
to be open to possibility in order to heal. That's different than clinging and expecting. So just, and you can feel the difference in your body between the kind of hope that's a clinging hope, it's wanting it a certain way, and the hope that just isn't open to how it might be. You can feel it in your body. You're, I'm sorry? So the question is, let if your child's been kidnapped and gone, and then what about that kind of hope? There's no way around a mother having their child kidnapped and having the most horrendous grasping in the world and all we can do is notice the grasping and just say, this is my humanity. I mean, if my child was kidnapped, I'd be just like, oh, please, God, oh, please, you know, and that forget the Buddhist thing, you know? <laughs> Here's where the Buddhist thing would come in is there'd be a place in me that was noticing and aware that I was going, oh, please, God, oh, please. Does that make sense? We're not trying to be. Di- we're not trying to deny our different hopes and fears and clinging. It's being aware, and gradually, as the awareness goes deeper and bigger and deeper and bigger, we start realizing we're not the one that's going. Oh, please, God, we're the awareness, and oh, please, God, is a conditioning that, of course, our body mind's going to experience. Thank you. I, I tried transcendental meditation for several years, uh, focusing on a mantra, and I'm not sure how successful it was. But anyway, I've been trying to do this kind of meditation for a few months, and I'm just wondering: should I stick with this, or is it good to kind of go back and forth? <laughs> <laughs> well, being one who has no preferences, of course, being the good Buddhist that I am. Transcendental meditation is a really has a valuable um, way of training the mind to use a mantra and get quiet and get more one pointed. Um, my experience has been that there is another step or possibility to becoming really free, and that is to not uh, lean on having something to keep you here, but rather to just open to how it is, like in a really full, honest, courageous way. Oh, what's it like now? What's it like now? Because we can't find within us that fearlessness that knows that whatever happens, um, it, you know, there's room for it if we're holding on to a mantra and trying to keep ourselves kind of focused on a mantra. So I look at a mantra as what I call a skillful means. It's a support. It's helpful. But the liberating practice is natural presence itself, is an absolutely non-resisting, open-hearted presence. And it's fine to move back and forth, as I think it was Sonia that brought up, it's okay to have the steering wheel, it's okay to have the mantra, but ultimately, it's, if you think of your, your being like, a, let's say there's a room and you, we normally close the door and put on the air conditioner and keep the phone, you know, the ringer at a certain level, we're controlling everything including the mantra, including the steering To be free we have to open the windows and the doors and let the winds just blow through, to really discover that we're not a self that needs to control, that this is awareness, this is presence that has room for it all. That discovery doesn't happen if we're hitched to an anchor. I'm a person who, who tends to withdraw from things and um, I'm fairly new to meditation and, and sometimes I find that I'm thinking, you know, after I've meditated and so forth, um, I, I've, I go out into the world and I'm back to, my, you know, everything is just as it was before. I'm in the trance or I'm responding in ways that um, 
is not how I want to respond. And so I, I tend to look at my, my meditation sometimes as a new way of withdrawing. Am I, am I withdrawing? Am I not trusting? Am I, are my motivations not what I thought they were? Um, can you talk about how I can convince myself it's not the situation <laughs> that, my, that I'm, I'm really doing the right thing? What is your intention when you meditate? Like, what is it that you're wishing or hoping in the most deep way for? To overcome fears, to be, to be uh, less likely to withdraw and not want to face situations that uh, I find unpleasant or difficult or, you know, whatever the case may be. So if you said, instead of saying not withdraw, what, how would it be another way of saying that? Turn and face and deal with um, face and deal. Yeah, uh, find out what the solution is instead of backing up and maybe overanalyzing a situation or thinking about things too much. Just get in and, and start working with it. So what I'm hearing is that you really want, in a more courageous way, to be stay engaged, stay right with what's right. going on. Mm-hmm. So let that guide the style of your meditation inwardly. So when something comes up, you might say, "Well, what would it mean to really?" stay engaged with this feeling or sensation or this breath? What does it really mean to, to... so that you're really staying right... you're coming home again and again, right here, in, in an engaged way. Because that... I look at the training we do when we're meditating as none other than the training for living fully, without holding... loving without holding back, being fully in it. And so it can be used as a withdrawal. I've seen many, many people use meditation in service of whatever they want to use it in service of. And so it can be a way of kind of shutting down and we think we're meditating but we're actually like a kind of contented cow kind of in the grass just chewing or, you know, it's like the mind just does whatever it does when it meditates. Let your intention be really clear because it sounds like you have something that's really um, beautiful that 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 will enlarge who you are. And you can use sitting on the cushion to do that. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. A reminder, uh, tonight, and I didn't announce it, so I'm glad that I have this reminder. We have our blessing circle. And um, if you haven't done it before, the blessing circle is a kind of a loving-kindness circle. It's a chance to bring in whatever's going on in your life and, and in a shared way kind of hold it in a space of kindness and heart. So you might want to uh, join in that tonight. So let's, let's close with a brief meditation. Again, life is a garden, not a road. We enter and exit through the same gate, wandering. Where we go matters less than what we notice. the invitation in these moments, even for these few moments, just to feel your sincerity about presence. Just for these few moments, a kind of wholeheartedness. A willingness to be intimate with just the life that's right here. And intimacy means noticing. To maybe put down the ideas about what's about to come. 
or any of the thinking, analyzing, commenting. And just notice. What's it like to come home in this moment to the life of the body? Can you notice that? What's it like to come home to the life of the heart, to whatever's going on, without any judgment, a real forgiving kind of presence? We close with the metta, our loving-kindness prayer, that we might regard this very life right here with a deep respect and understanding and care, that we might be intimate with the life that's right here, so that this heart, this boundless, awake heart that's our deepest potential can be intimate with this world, May all beings realize and live from loving presence. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.